Welcome to Noise in the Groove, the origin of sound recording. I'm Ramsey Janini, and this is episode two. How do you open this thing? In this episode, we'll start to ponder the initial reactions to news of Edison's tinfoil phonograph. In doing so, we'll center on the British Isles, and England in particular. So, first things first, why England? Wasn't the machine built in America by an American? Well, first and foremost, I chose to focus on England because I think it played a crucial role in the history of sound recording and reproduction. For one thing, it functioned as both a cultural and geographical bridge between Europe and the United States, the two other most important socio-political contexts in the early history of these technological developments. Am I allowed to lump continental Europe together? Why not? Stated most simplistically, the machines, their technicians and publicists, such as Fred Gaisberg, more on him later, along with recordings of early jazz and assorted Americana, flowed from the US to Europe, while important scientific research and ideas, as well as icons of high culture, such as the voices of early operatic stars like Patti and Caruso, flowed in the other direction, and much of this traffic went through England. Furthermore, England's relatively small geographical size and consolidated printed news culture, in comparison to the United States at least, makes the process of researching and defining something we can call a general opinion somewhat more approachable. In fact, as we move forward in time a bit, some interesting sound recording enthusiasts and trade magazines start to print in London. The earliest example is the phonogram, the first issue of which prints in London as early as 1893. Later on, we get the Talking Machine News, the Soundwave, and other publications that start to appear for a growing market of connoisseurs and collectors. These journals are a fascinating window into the world of early sound recording fandom, and we'll certainly be taking a look at them. Another reason for focusing on England is that, despite the importance I suggested earlier, it hasn't been quite as thoroughly researched as the American context has. So, depending on your perspective, it's either my unique contribution to the ship of knowledge or my gimmick. But let's remember that we're living in a telegraphic age, an age where technological and commercial developments such as the phonograph are really starting to happen on a multinational scale. By 1877, the way that news of an invention like the phonograph spreads across America and the UK is closer in media time to the product launch of the Apple Watch than it was for the telegraph. In other words, there probably wasn't as much difference as some might like to think between what these technological developments meant to literate and technologically aware people on both sides of the pond. So finally, why England? Well, apart from the reasons I've given, I'll borrow from the Spanish and say, porque si, which literally means because yes, and figuratively something like, well, because that's the way it is. England is going to be our first window into this history, for better or worse, and there are reasons to believe it gives us a good, albeit cloudy, perspective on what went down, and in English too. Also, I must add that England is only our viewing point, it's not a boundary. We'll be getting out our binoculars and checking out goings-on in the rest of the kingdom, as well as in France and Germany for a start, and we'll be checking the telegraph wires for news from the US, of course. With that said, it's safe to say the phonograph caught fire in the English press twice, To put it in another element for you more watery types, there were two main waves of journalistic enthusiasm. The first wave hit in 1877, when news of Edison's machine first printed on both sides of the Atlantic. After an initial furore, which lasted a good two years, public interest, as far as we can gauge from newspaper coverage, tapers off. Hmm, is that a fire metaphor? 
Ten years later, in 1887, Edison, with an eye towards several markets, begins to release with some pomp and circumstance his new and improved phonographs. He called them the improved phonographs. And they sparked a fire that still burns and triggered a tidal wave that's still crashing and we're still feeling the aftershocks and uh, the sound waves are still blowing in the wind. Well, so who was this Edison guy anyway? Wasn't he the guy who electrocuted an elephant? In an important respect, I don't care because this isn't a story about Edison and we're not off to see the so-called Wizard of Menlo Park. That being said, we will be saying an enormous amount about him, especially in the next few episodes. However, our emphasis will not be on Edison the man, but rather what he represented to the people of his time, which is another thing altogether. I suppose we should mention for the uninitiated that he was a prolific inventor, who was credited with over 1,000 patents, including, most famously, a practical electric light bulb, the phonograph, and developments in electricity, microphones, and movie cameras. Nowadays, he's often contrasted with Nikola Tesla, who most self-respecting geeks love to place above Edison in every respect. There's a popular vein of thought that argues that Edison was a hack who stole everything he was ever said to have accomplished from rival engineers like Tesla, as well as minions in his research labs. I don't want to get too bogged down in this debate. Suffice to say that Edison certainly had a very practical bend to whatever genius he possessed. The very idea of a technological research lab that both concentrated and exploited the labor of brilliant minds towards practical money-making ends, well, that's a stroke of evil genius in itself, if nowhere near as hip as Tesla's disregard, or was it ineptitude, for money. Tesla was a technical visionary and genius through and through, whereas Edison was, to say the least, a talented inventor and definitely a skilled and shrewd businessman. Hmm, maybe I do want to speak about Edison. Well... I certainly want to say one more thing. I think it's quite interesting to note that Edison was hard of hearing and practically deaf. And is it ironic, do you think, that the man credited with building the first machine capable of reproducing sound was hard of hearing? To quote secular humanist poet Alanis Morissette, it's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. It's said that Edison used to aid his listening to his phonographs by biting the wood to feel the vibrations orally and that as a result, his phonographs would bear the indentation marks of his money-sucking little teeth. Well, I say that with tongue-in-cheek. I don't particularly hate or love Edison, and we are getting to Dracula eventually. All this may seem a little too ironic, don't you think? But like rain on a wedding day, it's not. Deafness is not something outside of this history. In fact, it's closer to being fundamental, and not simply due to Edisonian connections. I'll quote historian Jonathan Stern, though slightly out of context on this issue. Uh, He writes, and I'll give him a different voice to mine. It's well known that Alexander Graham Bell was a teacher of the deaf. But I found in going through his work that a big part of his insights that led to the telephone came from his oralist approach to the deaf. As an elocutionist, he tried to train deaf children to speak as if they could hear, in the hopes of eradicating all cultural vestiges of deafness which is why he is a villain in much deaf history today. At one point, he tried out a machine called the phonograph that made tracings from people's voices on a piece of smoked glass. His idea was that it was a machine to hear for deaf kids, who could then see the results of their speech. It didn't work very well, but today, every time hearing people pick up their phones, they are delegating their hearing to machinery, just like Bell's deaf children. So instead of Bell getting the deaf to act like the hearing, in the age of telephony, 
the hearing now act like the deaf. You might be thinking, thanks Mr. Stern, that's fascinating, but did Edison electrocute an elephant or not? Well, the short answer is that while an elephant was electrocuted to death, Edison almost certainly had nothing to do with it. It was filmed by his company, yes, but they neither instigated nor organized the event. They simply filmed it, in the same way that they were filming hundreds of other spectacles at the time, and most of which without Edison's direct knowledge. Moreover, this all took place a decade or so after the so-called War of the Currents, and years after Edison had lost or sold the entirety of his electricity interests. So the commonly held notion that this was an Edison-led publicity stunt simply has no basis in the historical record. So who did kill this elephant and why? Gather round and I'll tell you a tale that would melt the car-sized heart of a whale. I call it Topsy-Turvy. Topsy the elephant was born somewhere in Southeast Asia, sometime around 1875. At some point in her childhood, Topsy was torn away from her family and brought to the United States. She soon found herself in a troupe of performing elephants as part of the Four Paw Circus. Oh, that sounds like Four Paw now that I that I, they say it, but it's F-O-R-E-P-A-U-G-H, but maybe the pun was intended, I don't know. Anyway, they falsely advertised her as the first elephant born in America. Topsy seems to have never particularly enjoyed her captivity in the U.S., and in her 25 years in the circus, she gained a reputation as a bad elephant. Of course, in show business, there's no such thing as bad publicity. In fact, the circus's popularity seems to only have increased, much to the owner's delight, no doubt, when she killed a spectator in 1902. She killed, I hasten to add, a cruel idiot who threw sand in her face and burned the sensitive tip of her trunk with a cigar, according to reports. It seems that enough was enough after she almost killed another idiot, and so she was sold as a laborer to Sea Lion Park on Coney Island for an undisclosed fee, and I'm not sure if she had a buyout clause or not. Sea Lion Park soon became Luna Park, and Topsy, now featuring a drunken handler, continued to generate publicity for her new lovely owners, Frederick Thompson and Elmer Dundee. What a name. Well, when they eventually got bored of her distaste for mistreatment and cruelty, they decided upon one last hurrah for Topsy. Thankfully, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals halted their plan to hang Topsy in front of a paying audience, but that didn't stop them from publicly executing her. Instead of a paying audience, it was for invited guests only, including, of course, the press, as well as the film crew. Their execution plan involved strangling the elephant with large ropes tied to a steam-powered winch, along with poison and electrocution thrown in for good measure. And indeed, on January 4th, 1903, Topsy was fed cyanide-laced carrots, electrocuted, and strangled. It was the electricity that killed her. As I mentioned before, the film crew did represent the Edison Manufacturing Movie Company, and the film was a money spinner released straight to coin-operated kinetoscopes under the title Electrocuting an Elephant. And it's probably under the same name on YouTube, available for a new generation of idiots to watch. Well, let's get back to our story, perhaps keeping in mind that we're dealing with a different generation of stupidity. I personally don't think our grandparents' grandparents were any more or less cruel to animals than we are today. They were just cruel in different ways. In the good old days, torturing animals was good public fun, and nowadays we prefer to torture our animals behind closed doors, and that's what some call progress. Our grandparents' grandparents. 
Most of us were cuddled by someone cuddled by someone who we're speaking about. But who were they? Who was I? And who are you? Are you sure you're you? It's snowing, and you're now one of Edison's assistants in October of 1877. Topsy is two years old, perhaps being tossed around terrified in a cold, dark crate on a boat crossing the Atlantic. And after a sleepless night of work, you and the team have finally constructed a working model of a tinfoil phonograph. In a moment, Mr. Edison, that's me, you'll get to be Edison next time, will start turning the crank and speaking loudly into the horn. Hello, hello, hello. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Ha, ha, ha! The recording I just played for you was a recording of a recording being made on a modern replica of Edison's tinfoil phonograph. Why do we need a replica? Well, there's a reason why whatever CDs are still hanging around your house aren't made of tinfoil. Tinfoil recordings degrade quickly and increasingly with every playback. Furthermore, once the tinfoil sheet was removed from the cylinder, it couldn't be replaced while preserving the recording. So storing sounds would have meant keeping the entire machine under lock and key. Because of these factors, no 19th century tinfoil recordings that I know of have survived the ravages of time in any shape or form. By the way, if you want to see the video that goes along with that audio, just search for Edison Tinfoil Phonograph Demonstration on YouTube. The audio has been appreciatively used with permission in this podcast. So, what did people make of this new noise? Well, for almost everyone in the world outside of Menlo Park, Their first encounter would not have been with the technology itself, but with the idea of the technology. They would have read about it in a newspaper, or heard about it from someone else who had, and the earliest article to appear in British newspapers was entitled A New and Wonderful Phonograph. The article printed on the 27th of November, 1877, in the Liverpool Mercury, and on December 1st in the North Wales Chronicle, and I'm sure it circulated amongst many other publications as well. So, now let's imagine ourselves on the coast of northern Wales on a chilly winter morning, being kept warm by boiled eggs in our pocket. A headline catches our sleepy eye. A new and wonderful phonograph. I'll spare you any Welsh accent here. The article opens, A more wonderful discovery than any we have yet to record in connection with the telephone has been made in America by Mr. T.A. Edison of New Jersey. We continue reading that Edison had solved the problem of reporting by graphic speech, and that if the telephone could reproduce a voice so clearly as to distinguish the speaker, then it's logically possible to hear a voice a hundred or more years after the death of the speaker. Hmm. Most curious indeed. A phonograph and telephone used in combination could deliver the speeches of a Mr. Gladstone or a John Bright across the world. And not only voices, music, or indeed any sounds could be preserved for posterity through the phonograph. To once again reference Jonathan Stern, one of the most interesting aspects of the initial phonographic discourse was the centrality of this metaphor of preservation. In Stern's Audible Past, which is essential reading for this podcast, 
He discusses how, in regard to preservation, the idea of phonography is preceded by at least two sets of cultural practices, the canning of food and the embalming of bodies after death. It's important to keep in mind that canned food, perhaps even more so than death, had different connotations than it does for us now. The first tin cans as we know and love them start to appear in 1810, but for the early part of the 19th century, it was an expensive and technologically advanced process. However, it was worth the cost when you needed to take cooked food with you on long journeys over land and sea into what you saw as the hearts of darkness. So, until the middle of the 19th century, they were mainly produced for the army and navy, along with your occasional Arctic expedition. Soon enough, though, for the more moneyed classes, it became something of a food novelty, and even status symbol of sorts, maybe like NASA ice cream was in my childhood. A funny thing about this history is that for a ridiculously long time, people had the cans but not the can openers. People struggled with knives and rocks for 50 years or so before anyone invented one, and when they did, it was basically just a knife. After that, another 75 years would pass before anyone thought of the two-wheel type that we're still using today. In that time, we invented sound recording, x-ray machines, radio, and the theory of relativity. But nobody had bothered to figure out how to open a can without Excalibur. I think somewhere in that story is what's wrong with our society, and I for one am already embarrassed by what the AI overlords are going to think. Though, for our sake, let's hope they're more disgusted by Whitey playing golf on the moon when Gil Scott Heron's sister Nell's face and arms began to swell. By the end of the 19th century, processes had improved, and canned foods had become more widely affordable, yet still desirable products. They were seen by many, as they continue to be seen, as clean, sterile, and healthy alternatives to the dirty butcher or greengrocers down the street. I, for one, have a downright shameful dislike for dirty carrots, but that's my problem. Well, we should say here that these connections between food preservation and the phonograph were not lost on people of the time. Jumping ahead two decades, with the business of recorded music continuing to expand and flourish, John Philip Sousa, band leader, conductor, and composer of marches like The Stars and Stripes Forever, would famously use the phrase canned music, attributed to his good friend Mark Twain, in his 1906 polemic essay entitled The Menace of Mechanical Music. Sousa was horrified by the thought of a phonographic future, where he foresaw an inevitable decline of the treasured traditions of amateur music making. In so many places where people would formerly sing or make music themselves, there would soon be machines to do it for them. And this would not only be bad culturally, but also bad for the physical constitution of Americans. Here's a little taste of his essay. Then what of the national throat? Will it not weaken? What of the national chest? Will it not shrink? This is how I think he speaks. When a mother can turn on the phonograph with the same ease that she applies to the electric light, Will she croon her baby to slumber with sweet lullabies, or will the infant be put to sleep by machinery? He ends his essay with this line. Music teaches all that is beautiful in this world. Let's not hamper it with a machine that tells a story day by day, without variation, without soul, barren of the joy, the passion, the ardor that is the inheritance of man alone. Ouch. Harsh words. Underlying Sousa's disgust was the fact that the brass band military march was one of the most successful genres of music to record with the technology of the time. But is it ironic? Hmm. In any case, the recordings really do still hold up well, if you're into that sort of thing. Sousa's band recorded often, though allegedly Sousa never once participated, not even to conduct his own music. Although something tells me he didn't refuse the money. Please correct me if I'm wrong. 
Meanwhile, let's listen to a bit of the old Stars and Stripes, recorded in 1909, a mere three years after the publication of his polemic. rousing. Let's cross the pond again and jump back to the 1870s. As we were saying, concurrent with sound recording, food was something that could and ought to be preserved in an ideal state, and the body was too. Chemical embalming practices were extremely popular in the 19th century. The body was preserved and beautified after death in order for it to be able to continue performing social functions. Death itself was much less taboo and was much more part of everyday life, and as far as the technological implications went, this was also the heyday of the post-mortem photo shoot. One of a family's most treasured possessions was often a collection of photographs of dead relatives, and in a time of high infant and child mortality, these photographs were often of infants and children. As creepy as these photos look to us now, just image search Victorian death albums and you'll see what I mean, these photos were loved objects. As for possibilities of the canned voice of the dead, well, in people's minds, it was a natural extension of these practices. But on the North Wales coast, perhaps with some canned pork shoulder to go with our boiled eggs, we're not thinking too much about these connotations as we read about the machine. Though if we are more literate, and if our mood happens to be reflective that morning, then perhaps Lord Tennyson's lines come to mind as we think about Dear Aunt Gertrude. But, oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. I think that's a good place to stop. In the next episode, we're going to take a sideways step. Before we continue onwards, I want to introduce you to the world of research and ideas that have both sparked my enthusiasm and influenced my approach to the themes of this podcast. I especially want to say a bit more about the work of Friedrich Hitler and Jonathan Stern, who are probably my two biggest phonographic inspirations. Once again, if you have any comments about anything you've heard in this episode, please post them on the website at noiseinthegroove.com. But for now, so long, and thank you for listening.